Well, Four Points Church, thanks so much for taking some time to check out our sermon today as we close out this Rise of the King series. My name is Pastor Russ, and if I've not gotten to meet you or greet you, we're glad that you've taken some time to check out this end-of-the-year service, and we're so glad that you're getting to watch it uh, with your family, with some friends, or online with our entire community that's tuning in together. We've been in a series called Rise of the King. We've looked at this theme and this desire from the nation of Israel to have stability. They longed for a king that would stabilize and give them a sense of security in their life. But no earthly king could do what Jesus would ultimately come and do at his arrival. And we've celebrated now that Emmanuel has come, that this promise that was foretold hundreds of years in advance has been fulfilled by the coming of Jesus in Bethlehem on that starry night. Now we've looked at the insufficiencies of earthly kings before him to uh, bring a sense of security into our lives, but we now find ourselves in a unique season of waiting. The first arrival of Christ has come. Jesus then ascends back to the Father, and we're now awaiting His second arrival. And today I want to end our series by talking about the waiting for the return of the King. One of my favorite texts and books in the Bible is the book of Acts. It's the story of the inauguration and birth of the church. In Acts chapter 1, the disciples, after seeing Jesus appear to them and up to a groups of over 100 for over a 40-day period, come to this place where Jesus gives some final words to them. He gives them purpose. He says that they are to wait and the Spirit of God will come upon them and empower them to be a witness in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. And then... After giving them that final instruction, he goes off into the sky. The disciples stand there perplexed, looking. Even though they had received this instruction, it was quite strange. They had just seen Jesus 40-ish days earlier die, thinking it was over. Then he begins to appear, and now after 40 days, he goes away again, promising that he would return at some point in time. So after a season of waiting, they find themselves waiting again. And at the end of this year, you and I, as a part of this story, join in with the disciples on that day in Acts 1, waiting on the return of the, the, uh, the, return of the King. The return of Christ, uh, whenever I think about that term, scares me as a kid. I grew up in the era of Left Behind and the Left Behind book series. And then I went through something called Y2K. Some of y'all have no clue what Y2K is, but it was just an opportunity for everyone to go to the Walmarts and buy way more stuff than they actually needed. And for us, on that Christmas Eve, as the clock went from 1999 to the year 2000, uh, my little Methodist church in Moonville, South Carolina, decided that they were going to throw a party, and that we would, if Jesus was coming back, if this is how the world was going to end, we were going to end it being in church because we didn't want to be somewhere else if Jesus was coming back uh, to return at Y2K. So we all got together. We had uh, some subpar soup. Uh, you know, we sat together kind of in fear. And as a kid, I just remember being afraid. I, I was a, a teenager. I had a reverent fear of God because I wasn't living right. And I wanted to make sure that if he was coming back, that I was acting right when he came back because he surely didn't see all the other stuff I was doing that was really jacked up right before his return. And so we sat in that sanctuary, sort of celebrating, sort of afraid, counting down. And my father, who is a absolute prankster, snuck into the room where they have the power box for the church. And as we got to 10, 9, 8, and counted down to 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, he killed the power in the entire church, and I lost my mind. So the return of Christ hasn't always been something that brought encouragement to me. And maybe it doesn't bring encouragement or a sense of stability to you either whenever you think about Christ 
return. But today I, I want to take a few minutes to give you some scripture that points to this return that Jesus is going to come and what it will be like. And then I want to give you some encouragement about what we should do in the waiting as we look ahead to this next year. The first thing I want you to know is that Jesus will return. It's not a joke. It's not an idea. I know it's been 2,000 plus years, but Jesus has promised himself that he would come again. John chapter 14, verse 1 to 4 says this, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God and trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? When everything is ready, I will come and get you so that you will always be with me where I am, and you know the way to where I'm going. So Jesus promises that He would come. And many of us think because of the number of years since His resurrection that maybe it's just not going to happen, or it's going to happen soon because you've looked at some signs, watched a lot of late-night Christian TV, maybe read a Christian comic or two about the end times, and you've come to the realization that you figured out a secret code that's told you when Jesus would return. Well... You need to remember that God is not confined by time, that ultimately uh, He is not rushed in the sense that we feel rushed by time. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, Jesus goes so far as to say and remind us through Peter that we must not forget, dear friends, a day to God is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. So God's timetable doesn't work the same as our, as our timetable. Zechariah, who we talked about a few weeks prior, and most of the people at the beginning of the New Testament had given up on the actual coming Messiah. They ritualistically met. They had holidays and festivals that were meant to remind them of the unfulfilled promises of God, that they were to be patiently and expectantly waiting on them to be fulfilled. But they had fallen into a routine of unexpectancy. They weren't anticipating the return of Christ. They weren't living with an urgency that God was going to come and fulfill His promise. And they were taken off guard. And most of the world didn't even know Jesus had come in His first coming. Well, unfortunately, the same will be true for many people in His second coming. We, due to time, due to other distractions and circumstances on earth, forget about the promise of Christ's second coming. And as a result, the second thing that we should know about His return is that Jesus will come quickly and unexpectedly. No one has figured out the hour, the day, and the moment. Jesus has given us signs to be aware of, but not so that we could uh, coast until we get really close and then kick it into high gear so that we could look super spiritual at the return of Christ instead of remaining constantly faithful before God. This is one of the most consistent themes that we see over the entirety of the New Testament, that the arrival, the second coming of Christ will be unexpected and it will be unforeseen by those that are on earth. Matthew chapter 24 verse 44 says this, you must be ready at all, you must be ready all the time for the son of man will come when least expected. First Thessalonians chapter five, verse two, for you know quite well that the day of the Lord's return will come unexpectedly like a thief in the night. Again, years later, 2 Peter being one of the later books that was written in the New Testament, 2 Peter 3.10, it says this, But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with terrible noise, and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire, and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. So this second coming of Jesus will come quickly and unexpectedly. Now, some of us, we hear that it's been 2,000 years since Jesus rose from the dead, but the scripture nonetheless is true that when we least expect it, 
Jesus will come, and it will come unexpectedly and come bring time to an end very quickly. So don't buy the book of a late-night Christian TV guy telling that he's figured out a code. It's bumpus. At the end of the day, Jesus knows the hour, the day, and the time that he will return. And when he does come, he will come to judge, not to extend salvation or not to continue to give a season of common grace. You see, that's the season that we're in right now. It's a season where Jesus, because of his first coming, has made the provisions necessary for you and I to be made right before God. Jesus gave his life, shed his blood, so that by faith in that sacrifice, you and I could be saved. And he's offered that salvation to whosoever would believe. Jesus' desire is that none would perish, but that all would come to repentance and salvation in him. But this season of common grace is time-stamped by time. And at his second coming, unexpectedly and quickly, as the scriptures teach us throughout the New Testament, Jesus will call time to an end, and the season of common grace will be brought to an end, and judgment will begin. And everyone will be either found guilty and justly condemned in their sin before God, or forgiven and set free justly by the blood of Christ. The question that you and I should consider based on the scripture is that if Jesus came the first time and people were not expecting it, and he's promised to come a second time and you and I are tempted by time and distraction to not expect it, is that you and I should consider, are we ready to stand before God in that judgment? Will it be our life and our reputation without the blood of Christ that we will stand on, which means we'll justly then be condemned and separated from him in a place called hell for eternity? Or will the blood of Christ be accounted to us by grace through faith? Jesus' blood accounted to our life making payment for us. Good people go to hell, folks. There's a lot of people that live great amoralistic lives, some of the best of humanity, who then come to the end of their life, stand before God without Christ, and as a result of it, do not find themselves in an eternity with Christ, but in a Christless place called hell. And for you and I, we need to understand that what gets us to heaven is not our good works, but Christ's good work. Not our sacrifice, our religious acts, but Christ's sacrifice that now has called us into good works because the good work of salvation and our eternal security has already been secured by Christ. So we need to remember the fact that at the end of this year, I know it may be disturbing for some, and this is old school preaching, but for a lot of us, we need to remember that Jesus has promised that he will come back and he's a man of his word. And when he comes back, it'll be unexpected and it will be quick. And the third thing we need to see is that many on that day of his return will be unprepared. Many will be unprepared. Where do we get that from? Well, Mark chapter 13 says this, Mark 13, verse uh, 32, or excuse me, verse 33. It says, And since you don't know when that time will come, the time of Christ's return, be on guard. Stay alert. You, you want to be on guard. There's a, another story Jesus told about uh, the marriage party who didn't come prepared, and then they weren't ready whenever Jesus came back. One of my favorite 1990s early worship songs came from DC Talk, and, it's, and the tagline of the song was, I wish we'd all been ready. Are you ready for the return of Christ, or are you unprepared? I sat across uh, several Christmases ago, and we would come back on trips uh, to be around or with family at Christmas time, and we would try and catch up with a few friends and we were at Cheesecake Factory over, in, uh, over at the Haywood Mall. And I remember sitting across from a friend who had started in ministry and for various reasons had gotten away from it. And I, just in a genuine love for them, wanted to know, you know, are you doing what you feel like God has called you to do? Are you at peace with where God has you, with what God is doing? And as I asked that question, a 
terrified look came over his face and he said, man, if Jesus came back right now, I would be ashamed of what I'm doing. It's not that he wasn't saved. It's not that he didn't, wasn't going to live in eternity with Christ. But in the current moment with time that he had been given, the gifts he had been given, and the place that he was living, he wasn't living a life that he felt like was God-honoring or reaching its full potential for the glory of Christ. Are you prepared for the second coming? It'll come unexpectedly and quick. Many will be unprepared. And then this is a unique part that I feel like I have to extend to you today. Many at Christ's return will actually mourn and not celebrate. You would think that with Jesus being such a great Savior and so gracious and merciful to us that the return of Christ would bring worship, that many people who have doubted or said if they could see more, they would respond in in, uh, great worship of God. But it actually speaks in Revelation of a time where uh, in the tribulation, the scroll is rolled back or the sky is rolled back and we can see into heaven. And in that moment, people, instead of repenting, gnash their teeth and shake their fist at God. For some, time is not what they, more time is not what they need. In fact, instead, what they long for is a continued season of self-righteous rebellion where they can build their own kingdoms, create their own wars, which is interesting that the Psalms then say that at the return of Christ, he'll break the chariots and break the, bow, uh, the, break the bows and the arrows and bring devastation to the earth because in that moment, there'll be no more arguing. There'll be no need for a defense eternity. There'll be no excuses. In in that moment, we are either found alive in Christ by the grace and mercy of Christ given to us or dead in our sins. Matthew chapter 24 verse 30 speaks of this reality. It says this, And then, at last, the sign that the Son of Man is coming will appear in the heavens, and there will be deep mourning among all the peoples on earth. So there's not worship, there's not repentance, there's not celebration, it's mourning that they can't live in their own selfish, sinful way. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. This is repeated again in the beginning of the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1, 7, it says, Look, He comes with the clouds of heaven, and everyone will see Him, even those who pierced Him. And all the nations of the world will mourn for Him, Yes and amen. That morning is not a repentant morning, but it's a morning in rebellion against God. So Jesus promised He's going to return. He's a man of His word and He will. It will come quickly and unexpectedly. Many will not be ready. And what will be a day of rejoicing for the believer will be a day of mourning for those who have rebelled and continue to seek to live in their own life apart from the authority and apart from the forgiveness and apart from relationship with God. God. And so Jesus has ascended and he's not back yet. So what in the world do we do? I mean, do we sing Jesus songs, hang out at church a lot, try not to, you know, cuss, chew, and kiss girls that do, don't go to rated R movies, PG-13 movies, or ever be in a movie theater because that's not where you want to be when Jesus comes back. Listen to Joe Dirt's mom's advice and make sure that you're in the place that you want to be when Jesus... I mean, like, what, what do you do in all the waiting? What, what do you do? Well, waiting feels passive. The disciples waited for the Holy Spirit to empower them to good work. And and you and I now are filled with the Holy Spirit when we surrender our lives to Jesus and His Lordship and we're called to good works. 
And we know that that's part of the Christian experience, but let's just be honest, bills and stress and relationships. I mean, you just came through a holiday season where you were likely around people that you didn't choose to be around, you were told to be around, and and you're dealing with the fact that life is distracting, and in a few days, if you do have a vacation, you've got to go back to the same job or the same routines, or maybe you're just in that moment of your life where you're just ready to rip it all up, blow it all up, and start over again thinking that you would get a different result. I mean, this world is distracting and it's easy to get off target with what will matter in light of eternity. So what I want you to understand is that waiting is not passive when we look at it from a biblical standpoint. Waiting is not like, well, we just sit back and try to live a good life, do some good things, go to some church services, listen to a few good sermons, be nice to our wife, be nice to our husband, try not to say mean things to our kids. Like, like, like waiting is not just trying to like come up with some substandard like mediocrity that we can then say, well, we did our best, God, in the end of our life. Instead, waiting biblically is active. It's purposeful. It's intentional in the waiting. In fact, as I look through the scriptures, there's four things that I see in the text that we should be doing in light of the fact that Jesus is returning on a consistent basis. These should consistently mark our lives. Number one, If we want to be active in our waiting, intentional in our waiting, and found faithful when Christ comes back, we have to hold tight. You've got to hold tight. What do we hold tight to? 2 Thessalonians tells us in chapter 2, verse 15, With all these things in mind, dear brothers and sisters, stand firm and keep a strong grip on the teaching we passed on to you, both in person and by letter. So we hold tight to the Word. All these things will pass away. But the Word of God will not pass away. The Word of God stands for eternity and all of time. And so the Word of God is faithful and true and just. It's a firm foundation for us to build our lives on. So when we don't know what to do or what we're doing, we hold tight to the promises that are found in the Word of God that remind us that this life is a vapor, that it's temporary, that what we do matters in light of eternity, that we really are redeemed, that the gospel is true, that Jesus is alive, risen, reigning, ruling, and He will Return, And so we hold tight to the word, to the promise of God, especially when we see trouble and tribulation. Most of the New Testament involves churches that are extremely discouraged, highly persecuted, going through the strain and the struggle of the fact that their relationship with Jesus has made their life more complex and not more easy. Going through the reality of the fact that walking with Jesus means trouble on this side of eternity. This has been promised to us that we will go through times where the world, if we hold tight to it, will be ripped from our hands in order for us to hold tight to Christ. And if the world is our treasure, we will often abandon the faith and walk away from the Word of God and the promise of God that, and the promise of what we hold in the future with God in order to hold on to what we've treasured most in the world. But instead, we hold loosely to the world and we hold tight to the Word of God. So if you want to be active in your waiting, hold on to the promise Remind yourself of God's Word in this new year. Remind yourself of the new identity. Don't, don't define yourself by the way the world would define you, but hold tight to what the Word has taught about you in Christ Jesus. Number two, we gather and encourage. So if we actively wait, we hold tight and we gather and encourage. Hebrews chapter 10, you're probably familiar with it if you've been going to church for a long time because pastors like to remind you when church attendance slides that this is in the Bible. Hebrews 10, 25, it says, and let us not neglect our meeting together as some people do, but encourage one another. We gather not to be discouraged, 
but we gather to be encouraged. One of my favorite pastors said, we get together every uh, seven days to make sure that we can re-gospel ourselves. We need to be reminded of the gospel, reminded that it's really true, reminded that God is coming uh, again. So we gather together to be encouraged, especially now that the day of His return is drawing near. Hebrews 10, 25. So we hold tight if we're actively waiting. We gather and encourage if we're actively waiting. Number three, we are intentional and diligent. We must be intentional and diligent. James, Jesus' half-brother, he doesn't withhold any punch in his book and letter that's written. And in James chapter 5, verse 7 and 9, it says this, Dear brothers and sisters, be patient as you wait for the Lord's return. Consider the farmers who patiently wait for rains in the fall and in the spring. They eagerly look for the valuable harvest to ripen. You too must be patient. Take courage, for the coming of the Lord is near. Don't grumble about each other, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. For look, the judge is standing at the door. One of my favorite things that I used to see was a lot of friends after high school began getting the tattoo, Only God Can Judge Me. And I used to look at them, having become a newer believer, recognizing that Jesus was going to return. And when He did return, He was coming not to sing Kumbaya, not to sit around a campfire and, uh, you know, uh, hold hands and you know make s'mores, but instead he was coming on the white horse and on his thighs tattooed King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and he's coming to judge the living and the dead. And I always looked at them when they would get that tattoo, and I was like, "Do you understand that he will? Like, like you do get the idea that Jesus, at his return, will judge you, and his judgment will be just, his judgment will be right, and it will be good. He desires grace that can be found in Christ, but he brings just." judgment to us. And so in the meantime, we are to be uh, intentional and diligent. We're to be intentional. What does that mean? We're to be intentional about the fact that we can be patient because what we are longing for and waiting for is in eternity. So we're not trying to cram it all in. We can prioritize kingdom values and kingdom kingdom initiatives because we can be diligent in the fact that we know that this is not our home. So we're not trying to get the most out of life. We're not trying to get the bucket list in. We're trying to be faithful in the end. And this is what we must remind ourselves of. If we're to wait correctly, if we're to wait actively, we must be intentional and diligent, which means we're patient. We don't grumble against each other. We trust in the fact that the coming of Christ will be good news and celebration for us because our hope is in His second coming. When time is called to an end, when death is thrown into the lake of fire, an eternal life begins in His glorious presence forever. So if we're to wait, we're not going to be passive in our waiting, but we're going to hold tight gather and encourage, be intentional and diligent. And then finally, we are going to fearlessly proclaim the gospel to all people. Until he comes back, we fearlessly proclaim the gospel to all people. Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, it says this, And the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it, and then the end will come. Until he comes, may he find us faithful to proclaim the gospel. Now, this text is clearly talking about the proclamation and preaching of God's Word. We see the disciples do that in the book of Acts. But let me be very clear to you, all of us are involved in this, whether we preach the gospel from platforms or from large stages or in small groups. Our lives should preach the gospel. Our actions should should preach the gospel. Uh, The priorities of our life should preach 
the gospel, the way we view life and respond to circumstances within time should preach the gospel. At the end of the day, what I want you to understand is that if we are to fearlessly proclaim the gospel to all people, we have to embrace the fact that our homes, our, our embassies, our churches, our embassies, our businesses, our embassies, and we are the ambassadors of the message of the gospel, the good news of the fact that Jesus has died, risen, and is victorious over death and sin for us. So may your church and your house and your business, and your neighborhood be an embassy and an outpost of the kingdom to come that lets everyone know that there's more to life than what can be seen, that there is more on the other side of this vapor that God has for us, and that truly the best is yet to come whenever they see and encounter us in our places. And may your life be an ambassadorship to the kingdom that is to come. May our lives first be... Uh, may, may, may our lives... Uh, our lives are first to be about the representation of the gospel. So may your work and the life and the interactions you have there be about the gospel. May your neighborhood and the way that you neighbor be about the gospel. May the way you love your spouse be about the gospel. Because in every relationship and in every, uh, and in every space we fill, we are embassies and ambassadors of the gospel to come. So a couple questions to close our time out at the end of this year. Number one, are you waiting well for the return of Christ. Like if Jesus were to come back now, would you be found faithful? Are you waiting well? Or are you passive? Are you, are you distracted? Are you overwhelmed with worry and fear? Or, or are you waiting well? Are you holding tight? Are you gathering and encouraging other believers? Are you being intentional and diligent in your living? Are you fearlessly proclaiming the gospel? Are you waiting well, and then finally, what reminders from this sermon need to be considered as you look into your next year? What changes need to be made? I mean, this is what we always do, right? At the end of the year, we begin to think on what's happened and what we hope will happen in the year to come. Well, my prayer for you as your pastor or on this day as a shepherd under the great shepherd in your life would be that you would consider perhaps some places where you've begun to hold loosely to the word and tightly to the world or that you would in this next year begin to gather and encourage other believers because as much as you need to be encouraged they need to be encouraged by you or that you would live with a laser focus on kingdom priorities and kingdom values in this next year so that you can make an impact that would give a glorious praise to God. Or maybe it's that you need to fearlessly proclaim the gospel to people that you have cowered away from gospel conversations for too long. So may this next year be the year where you step up and as the Holy Spirit fills you, you become the light in the darkness that the scriptures say that you are. You become the ambassador and the representative of the kingdom to come that you've been called out to be. May you be the salt in your neighborhood, all the more as the day of Christ's return draws near, and we look to that day to mark the way in which we live and engage and interact with the world around us today. Now, my prayer for you is that when He returns, you'll be ready. In Jesus' name, amen.